Please. Welcome to my podcast, Ayurvedic Healing and Beyond. It's your host, Dr. Vignesh Devraj. And today I have a very inspirational guest and who I also adore to what she's doing right now, who gave up everything and to pursue her inner calling. Now, she's someone who is congruent to this concept, what works and what doesn't work. I mean, she was a neurologist, is one of the first world countries, and she gave it all up because neurology is something, you know, I, when I went to study Ayurveda, many of my colleagues were like, oh, I got into Ayurveda because I couldn't become an allopathic doctor. And so I had no other choice, so I had to join Ayurveda. And so it was like, at least I get the title that I'm a doctor. But even when we study Ayurveda, we were thinking, oh my God, this is, I wish I was an allopathic doctor. This was a constant background noise that they had to fight when they were studying Ayurveda. And later, when you see people who are into allopathy and we all are like, there is a vacuum. Oh, I wish I was an allopathic doctor, but I ended up being an Ayurvedic doctor. But today we see how much Ayurveda is helping. And when you go and speak to an allopathic doctor, especially in India, it's like, you know, like the time during the medieval church, you go and tell them I belong to an LGBT community. That's how terrible it is. But on the other hand, there are doctors who are very passionate, whether this works for my patient or not. That's all I care about. I'm not going to be glued to one propaganda or any belief. If this works, then I believe in it. If this doesn't work, I have to question it and I have to update. So today, the person that I'm going to interview, someone who believes in or questions constantly what works. If it doesn't work, it's time we question and renew it and update it. And it is none other than Dr. Kulri Chaudhary. She has written a fantastic book called The Prime, a very original book on Ayurveda where she's blending her background on neurology. And she gives you a lot of insights, especially we always think that, okay, losing weight or disease is something to do with something has gone wrong. Or we put a lot of self-blame on willpower and other, other things. But in this book, she talks about how scientifically many of the chemicals that are inside our body actually rule us and how we become a slave to that and step by step how we come out of it. And after she became an expert in Ayurveda, after integrating Ayurveda in her neurological practice, then she realized there is something more beyond that and that is into mantras, chanting. And someone like me, I am a very passionate person when it comes to chanting mantras and Sanskrit and many other aspects of how powerful the sound and the words can be. The words are spells, you know. You can kill a person with the words, you can heal a person with words, you can make a person smile with words. So today, I'm so grateful to have Dr. Kulri Chaudhary, and we're going to discuss about her book on sound medicine and also discuss some of the insights about that. Thank you so much, Dr. Kulri Chaudhary, for being a part of my podcast. I'm so looking forward to all the insights that you're going to share with me. Thank you so much, and I really appreciate your introduction because... For me, I didn't have that perspective. I have such high regard for Ayurvedic medicine, having come from you know, the allopathic side and then seeing the, the beauty and treasure of Ayurveda. Mm -hmm. And it really, it wasn't until I came to India and was started to work with Ayurvedic physicians. And that was the first time that I saw that the Ayurvedic physicians actually valued allopathic medicine first and foremost, and you know, looked at Ayurveda secondly. So it was, it was really kind of a shock to me that um, coming from the land of the Vedas, that people had lost the true value for this um, extraordinary gift. I think one of the reasons why 
Ayurveda is quite famous in first world countries because Ayurveda has a real solution for problems of the first world country. <laughs> and, no, it's and, very true. It's very true. Exactly. Yeah. And, in terms of approaching chronic disease, it's very, very difficult. And I think when there's, uh, you know, when a country is still developing, you're following the example that's being led by first world countries. And so I'm coming at it from the opposite spectrum of knowing that our solutions didn't answer all the questions. And so we had to start looking, you know, at other traditions. Exactly. And I think in India, allopathic system is regarded great because we still have, we still tolerate a lot of poverty. And mm -hmm. when there is poverty, there's going to be a lot of infectious diseases and emergency medicine requirement. And so there, no, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. It's something that I've come to appreciate also in when mm -hmm. we were trying to create um, like, programs for the poor in the area mm -hmm. that they didn't have the luxury of lifestyle changes you exactly. know that everything was so basic like it was very very basic immediate needs and so there's absolutely a role of allopathic medicine um you know in cases like that where it's of immediate need but as india is becoming more affluent more and more people are realizing that they're now inheriting the first world diseases you know exactly. that are related <laughs> to chronic stress of you know obesity and it's the inheritance of um, excess, more luxury, more calories, all of that. And that's what the first world really struggles with. Exactly. So, I mean, you're, you're blessed to have the blend of both. You know, you've got to see the best of allopathy and the best of Ayurveda. So someone like you, when you talk, it's really fantastic to hear from the horse's mouth. You know, how, what works and what doesn't work. Thank you. So, so doctor, what got you into mantras? and the sound, sound healing. I mean, someone with the background of neurology and then you got into Ayurveda and then you decided there is something beyond this that is mantras. So what, yes. what's the story behind that? The story began actually very, very young. I mean, I was extremely fortunate to have a mother who, you know, Indian mother who came to the U.S., but then in the U.S., again, there, there is a there is a disease to having success in America. And so she started having all of these stress-induced conditions. And um, so she actually went to her endocrinologist for a thyroid condition, and he had recommended mantra meditation as a way of reducing stress, that he, he recognized that moving from India and you know, essentially fulfilling the American dream of having the nice cars, the nice house, you know, all the things that people work so hard for here, that it had created so much stress in her life and so he had introduced her to mantra meditation and I was nine at the time, my sister was seven. And because of the radical improvement in her health, her entire, all of her thyroid um, symptoms had completely resolved within six months. So she got us um, into mantra meditation at nine years of age. So it was always something that was a part of my life. And when I began to introduce Ayurvedic medicine into my practice as a neurologist, you know, I invariably got to a point of realizing, and I'm sure you've seen this also, especially for neurological conditions, you cannot just do the panchakarma. You cannot just have the herbal, you know, recommendations. You have to free the mind and the nervous system of the stress that is associated with the neurological condition. And so then it became a very important part of my practice. But it was not until I actually came to India and started studying um, Siddha medicine and started really um, gaining the insights from the Siddha texts that I started to understand that there is a quantum reality of why mantras work. 
And when I started to really understand that, then it started to make sense why in all of the ancient texts, as you said, you could do anything with sound. Now, it takes a certain level of evolution to be able to connect with sound to get to that point, but it's 100% possible, it's 100% plausible. And our own quantum physicists, you know, in the West have really paved the way for understanding the science of it. But what's beautiful is even in the ancients of the text, they talk about the quantum reality of this. Mm -hmm. So mantras for me, when we start, when you start to get into things like mantras, which I kind of put under vibrational medicine, you're really starting to get into the field of quantum biology. Mm -hmm. And that is just what's so exciting. And that's what I really see as the next 10, 20 years in um, medicine, um, definitely in the West. I'm hoping also that it comes you know, back to India because that's really the place that birthed all of this knowledge. But that is where I see the future of medicine going is into quantum biology. And when you go into quantum biology, you absolutely cannot ignore the impact of sound as a therapeutic tool. Mm -hmm. So that's how you got into it. Is there something like an aha moment that personally also changed you with this thing? Yes, very much so. You know, um, when, when I started doing this work with the brain-gut connection, and, you know, I got a lot of accolades of like, oh, you know, this was a brilliant connection. I said, but it's not. It's, it's all of a sudden, like in some moment, usually in meditation or after meditation, it all comes together and you go, oh my God, how did I not see this before? And it was the same thing with, with mantras. Again, something that I have been immersed with literally for almost my entire life. Um, it was as I was starting to, you know, look at some of the information coming from the, the Siddha text, looking at my own practice. And I already had like a, you know, uh, a background in, I loved studying quantum physics as a child. It was somehow reading the Siddha text that put it together in a way that I was like, oh my God, how did I miss this? Mm -hmm. Like, how did I miss this as a fundamental reality? And I'll tell you, I think one of the challenges, and I don't know if you have, um, have hit this also, is so many of the ancient texts, they're written so poetically. Mm -hmm. And so because they're written so beautifully, we take them as metaphor. You know, we think that they're talking about something as an analogy, but when you start to take them as literal, even though they're written in um, poetic verse, when you start to take them as literal, what you're able to translate then is the exact same thing that like quantum physicists have come to the same conclusion of. And so then when you understand that they're not talking poetically, they're not talking in metaphor, they're actually talking about the true nature of biology, then you start to look at you know, how they were using mantras and you go, oh my God, you know, this isn't something just that is soothing to listen mm -hmm. to. They're actually giving you a code. They're giving you a biological code, a quantum code for rapid, rapid transformation. And so that was the aha moment when I realized that they're not giving something that is not 100% factual. It's just written in a way that it's almost like you have to enter a certain level of consciousness just to be able to pull the two together. And that was my aha moment. That was when I was like, oh my God, like, you know, how did I miss this huge connection and the huge power of mantras? Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, it's hard also when you do have a background, in, you know, being Indian, because these are things that were always present. 
-hmm. And I think the hardest treasures to find are the ones that are under your nose. Mm -hmm. If it's something that you have been exposed to, you, you can't fathom just how powerful it could be. And so it was one of those moments of a fish not realizing that it was surrounded by water. (laughs) I mean, uh, I like the word that you say. It's like a biological code, like a password that awakens you. In fact, the the word meaning for mantra in Sanskrit, you know, it has two phonetical sounds. Man means the mind and the word tra, that actually means to protect. So the word mantra means to Okay, you can put it two ways. Either it's to protect from your mind or it's protecting you from your monkey mind. You know, it could be any of that. So we could go in an anxiety loop and then suddenly, okay, now let's chant this Triambagam Mantra or Hanuman Chalisa or, you know, we are programmed from childhood. uh, If you you live in India, okay, let's chant this mantra. This will go away or you chant this mantra. It's like you're holding on to something that is giving us a hope that something could change. And that hope is so powerful for the mind that I think there is someone behind me to take care of me. It's just, it could be a placebo, it could be something, but definitely the sound is giving some sort of change inside us, I feel. No, it's absolutely, and it it goes beyond even just the impact it has on the mind, because even my approach to it, you know, my own personal experience with it has been how much it's allowed me to focus my mind. Mm -hmm. And when you have that mental focus and when you have that capacity to remove so many of your programs, then you're able to do things that seem like impossible tasks or, you know, like so many people ask me, how were you able to leave everything, you know, in San Diego and go there with so much uncertainty, you know, when, I mean, you know this, when you do anything in India, it's totally (laughs) uncertain, you know, what's going to happen, whether it's even going to last. And I said, because the connection was so strong, um, you know, to that silent space beyond the mind that I, you know, I wasn't so influenced by all of the hesitations of the mind that something inside me knew that there was a treasure that was, you know, waiting there. And now so many people who are even, you know, creating programs for peak performance in corporations and for executives, their main focus is on how to silence that monkey brain. Mm -hmm. But the beauty of it is, is when you silence that monkey brain, it has an immediate effect on your body. And there's specific mantras for specific areas of the body. So it's not just a mental impact. It has immediate physiological impacts. And, you know, some of the um, Nada Yoga is um, the use of sound for healing. Mm -hmm. And some of our clients who have received the Nada Yoga healing sessions, I mean, they have had a faster transformation than anything I have ever done, like, you know, through Panchakarma or through any kind of internal therapy. And so it's a a real testament to the, the relationship that, the mind and the impact that the mind has on the body. So never look at mantras as just like, oh, it's to help to reduce anxiety. No, it's, it's there to actually physically change um, the composition of the body. I mean, when we grow up, you know, we are told, okay, if you want to improve your intelligence, you need to chant this mantra. Mm-hmm. If you want to improve your physical health, you need to chant this mantra. If you want to be brave, you chant this yes. it's like it's like a buffet and you go and select what's best for you like you, have, you need vitamin c you need vitamin d you have so much <laughs> options to take it and it's like a vitality for our mind and our nervous system no it is and i think it is that because it was such a buffet we you were never starved of the knowledge mm-hmm. and there's something to be said about an individual that's coming to the table hungry mm-hmm. um you know not having all of this that then you really feel the value of this information 
you know, it's amazing to me because at the, at the center, we would have people coming from all over the world. And so we would have people from China coming who were chanting mantras because sound therapy in the form of, of mantras was such a big part of our offering on a daily basis to the clients there. And we would have all of these people coming from all of these different countries, you know, chanting. But my own staff, you mm -hmm. know, my own Indian staff, like we really had to arm wrestle them to like come do the chanting that, you know, <laughs> I said, you're seeing people coming from all over the world. Mm -hmm. But because it was something that they, they grew up with, but they never used, they grew up with it, but they never implemented it. Mm -hmm. There was just less value for it. And I just thought, boy, what, what irony, you know, what irony. I think the issue is, you know, we are told you have to do it. So, okay, it's a part of life, but it's you never questioned point. the why behind it. Yes. So, no, it's a very good point. It's a very good point. And for me too, because I was part of it at such a young age, but again, I was part of it in a culture that was so devoid of it. So to me, it was still very, it was something very, very special. Um, but even for me, it really wasn't until I re-examined this when I was writing the book and um, I was just, I was absolutely shocked at the science behind it, you know, and I was shocked that when I was looking into the, so the records that they were talking about the atom and they were talking about like the neutron, the proton, the electron, um, you know, from 8,000 years ago. And that was really when I made the shift of these are not spiritual practices. They're not even mental practices. They're quantum biology practices. And they're among the strongest things that you can do to really shift your physical reality. And just as you said, it can be from disease, it can be from um, you know, psychological problems, but it can also be from things like you know, poverty. And like th these are the resonant vibrations that have a direct impact on your existence in the physical world. I mean, that's how powerful they actually are. Uh, one analogy that I understand, you know, just like we have pacemakers, you know, when the heart rate is going low, the pacemaker uplifts that. Same way, I think the mantra chanting is to uplift your whole vibration. That's exactly right. Uh, what is going right. low, exactly. when you chant that, you're uplifting yourself completely. Because I think our greatest challenge is our monkey mind. You know, we are programmed to look for what's going to go wrong. No, it's ab you are absolutely right. And especially when you start to use like some of the bija mantras, you know, for the different energy centers of the body. You mean you know, like the chakras? As mm -hmm. The chakras, yeah. It's just, it's absolutely amazing to me how much gets pulled into balance by something as simple as a chakra, you know, just mm -hmm. doing a chakra mantra every single day, that all of the things that people struggle with, like how quickly it can be brought into balance just by doing that for 20, 30 minutes. Um, a day. But again, it's, it's, some, it's one of those things that until you do it, you, you cannot fathom the simplicity of something until you do it. But it's just like so many of our other recommendations, right, in Ayurvedic medicine. Like when we say something like drink water instead of sodas, mm -hmm. people cannot fathom how many things are going to improve just by that simple change, sure, yeah, exactly. right? Mm -hmm. Or just instead of having processed food for all of your meals, have one meal where it's, it's freshly cooked. You can't fathom that you know, your nine symptoms are all going to dissolve by making these simple changes. Simplicity is extremely, extremely powerful. But when you live in such a complicated um, lifestyle, it's hard to appreciate the magic of simplicity. And that's really where, where mantras fall in. There, it's the magic of simplicity, which is hard to comprehend 
in an unnecessarily complicated life. I think the problem is our brain loves to complicate. It really does. <laughs> I think that's <laughs> it, really does. <laughs> it really does. I, so many times I would have, you know, patients of mine, they'd, they'd come, especially neurological patients, as you know, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's not, um, it's not the easiest set of conditions to treat. Mm -hmm. And uh, they would come and we would just start with such simple recommendations, um, you know, and they would just go, how, you know, that's it. Like, that's all I'm starting. I said, yes, this is all you're starting because these are the things that you're going to start for just starting to shift your biology. And they could never believe that such simple changes could have such a huge impact. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's unfortunate that we've lost the value of simplicity. I always say, you know, look at the profound effect that love has in somebody's life, right? Mm -hmm. Like when they feel that there is just the presence of love, whether it's through a partner, whether it's through, you know, your parents, your children, just the presence versus absence of love in a home, it changes everything. How much simpler can things get than just love? Suddenly you, know, you just relax. And in that relaxation, yeah. you feel like all everything the hormones relaxes. Yeah, and mantras are really the same thing, except that instead of depending on the presence or the, you know, all of the benefits of having love in your life from an outside source, you're creating it internally. You're creating that biology every single day internally, which then makes you, you know, on, on so many levels, it, it makes you independent of all of the fluctuations because for everything else, you know, the fluctuations of like what's happening with your family, what's happening with your job, they have such a huge influence on you. But when you're, when you're generating this inner vibration, this inner chemistry, mm -hmm. when you're generating that literally on an atomic level, when you are changing the resonance of your very being, then you don't have to look for an outside source to give you that. And that's just, that's the phenomenal gift, you know, of, of, of mantra meditation. That's so well put, you know, like the difference between uh, a carbon and a diamond. I mean, it's, it's not much big difference, but not much. It's exactly right. The same way when you chant this mantra, the small, simple things, you know, like the butterfly wings could create a storm elsewhere in the world. Yes. The same way this vibration, it completely changes your environment and you see the world through your energy. You know, when you're feeling good, you see the world in a different way. When you're feeling low, oh, you see the world in a completely different way. Yeah. One of the things, you know, India, I always say, if you, if you have any desire for rapid spiritual evolution, you go to India. Like that is India's greatest gift to the world because uh, there's so few things you can control. I mean, especially for a Westerner like me, that's so accustomed to, you know, like if you go to the, you know, the post office, like, you know, your letter is going to make it, like, you know, your package is going to make it, that there's all of these structured um, aspects of life in the West that give you certainty. And the beauty that I have found with India is it takes all your certainty away. It takes all of your external certainty away, um, you know, more so than any other place I've ever been. And the beauty of that is it really forces you to go inward and say, okay, if I cannot control all of these external factors, what is the one thing that I can control? And that's your reaction to things. Exactly. You know, your reaction to things is going to determine whether you've created a tsunami, you know, if you've created a tsunami in your environment or that steadfastness, even in the presence of so many obstacles, so many challenges, you know, to get even small things done, that if you are volatile, if, 
if your reaction is volatile, that sets a vibration then that hits everybody around you. And that, I mean, India is honestly, it's, it's just, it's the greatest teacher, I think, on the planet for learning how to become internally aware and how not to react. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I read a businessman, I write a book called, if you want to grow global, st- uh, immediately start something in India because if you succeed there, you can succeed anywhere else in the world. You know, I have been, you know what, I have been saying this, I have been saying this for the past um, two years that I've been there. And I, I've been saying that now that I have been able to do this in India, I feel like I could go and run a small country. Like, I feel so capable mm-hmm. of going anywhere in the world and doing anything because the lessons that India has taught, even just in that short period, I mean, in two years, I feel like I learned a lifetime of lessons. Mm-hmm. The lessons that India has taught were so amazing. I mean, you would you would pay for these kinds of lessons, really. Like mm-hmm. you would pay to have a mentor come in and teach you this. But the only reason that I was um, receptive of those lessons was because of the mantra meditation, because of you know that personal daily practice. Because if you don't have something that balances you on a daily basis, like no matter where you are in the world and no matter what you are thrown. If you don't have some way of hitting a reset button on your mind every single day, you won't be receptive to those kinds of lessons because you'll just be thrown around from one extreme to the other. So, you know, if, 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 if people in India in particular could fully embrace what the magic of mantra is, because they're already in an environment that is such, it's, it's just such a rapid teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this, this country could just be absolutely phenomenal. That's the only thing we're missing is how to integrate the spirit, the ancient spiritual practices into the promises of the modern world. Like when you bring these two together, what you have is you have a country that's invincible. I think the hybrid model is the future for everywhere. It, it absolutely <laughs> is. I mean, we're seeing it here in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it was, I was so delighted because when I came here, some of the stores that never carried like organic products or, you know, health products, they're now offering them. And I said, you know, I'm just seeing the evolution of, of America also. And I'm seeing like left and right, there's so much, there's so many spiritual opportunities that people are taking. And, you know, they're so receptive to things like the science of, of mantras. And so I'm seeing it rise here. And what I, what I want to see is I, it's such a, it's such a weird thing to say, like, I want India to embrace Mm -hmm. its own, you know, its own legacy, Mm -hmm. like embrace what the West is bringing. Sure. You know, embrace like better business practices, embrace the technology, but make sure that you are holding on to your own legacy. Cause otherwise you're going to see the West take off with the legacy that's coming from India. Mm I think that is there, but I think, uh, you know, India is too strong. It will just survive. That's <laughs> really true. <laughs> it's a very, very resilient country. I mean, uh, very resilient colonized, uh, resilient. so many invasions happen, but still it's India is so India. <laughs> it's so true. Even when people were asking me, being here, like, you know, are you worried about COVID-19? I said, you know, if India hasn't killed me, I just don't feel like there's anything. <laughs> like the, the things I have caught in India that didn't kill me, I said, I just don't think there's another virus that could get to me. <laughs> like something was saying, you know, when you 
when you live in a tropical climate, you know, you are walking outside, you're not staying inside your room with your heater on. Yeah. So when you get exposed to so many different microbes, your immunity just so improves. True. And if a virus comes, I think that virus needs to quarantine because it won't make any sense. It's so true. I said the same thing. I said, there's not a virus that would threaten an Indian virus. <laughs> so, doctor, when it comes to the mantras, you know, one thing I wanted to ask you, uh, we always chant Om as the beginning of all the mantras. So, yeah. did you do any studies why we chant Om? Yeah. So, I mean, this is what I know. And I always feel like when, when we ask such fundamental questions like that, when we ask such primal questions, such as what is the significance of OM, there's always multiple different levels of the answer. So I can tell you what I have come to understand, you know, so far. So even just when we look at the sound of OM, there's three different sounds and they actually represent, you know, the creative force, the administrative force and the force of dissolution that we oftentimes associated in Indian culture as, you know, Brahma, Vishnu, and um, Shiva. And so there's something in this sound that is complete within itself and is linked to the entire process of creation itself, the administration of creation, the maintenance of creation, and then the dissolution of creation. And so it's said to be the sound that births all other sounds because because within it, Within this one sound, it has the three reverberations of the beginning and end of everything. Mm -hmm. And so when you bring this sound to the beginning of another mantra, you're essentially linking that mantra to everything that is and everything that is not. You know, mm -hmm. you're, you're linking it to essentially the, the manifested world and then also that which is going to become unmanifest at the time of dissolution. So it's a very, very powerful sound from that perspective and so it has that capacity to link you to every stage of existence and so it's linking now the power um that's coming from the creative and the the um, process of dissolution it's linking that now to the the mantra and it's said to be the sound from which all other mantras come from because of its internal kind of cyclic ability to to, to create and to destroy so that's why for so many people, they say, if you're not going to do anything else, just do the mantra, you know, Om, that it is enough. Mm -hmm. um, but if you want to do a mantra for creating something else or to linking yourself with some other energy, then, you know, the Om is placed in front of the um, remaining mantra. It's, it's a profoundly, profoundly um, powerful mantra. But see, then again, uh, how how casually we take even that for granted because you know you just you see Om everywhere in mm -hmm. India it's in front of everything and so just because we have access to it there's an assumption that if we have such easy access to it it must not be that important. Yeah, like the fish is not concerned so much about the water, like you put it. Exactly right. <laughs> and it, it's exactly also right. interesting, like the 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 phonetical sounds of Om, like A, U, and Ma. Yeah. yeah, these are the phonetical sounds you can say without moving your tongue, and mm -hmm. it has a very profound. And you see the vibrations from your stomach, from your chest, and from your head, and you activate no, exactly, all these energy right. centers. I think. Yeah, and those are all of the major energy centers that oftentimes mm -hmm. have energy that needs to be released. Like it's it's a sequential, you know, progression of from like the second chakra to the heart chakra to then you know the the third eye. 
Um, and so there's something internal about this one sound. I mean, for one sound that, that holds within it, the three sounds that are necessary for every aspect of existence, including the dissolution of, of existence. So it's, it's, it's just an extremely, extremely profound sound. That's uh, wonderfully put. I really appreciate that. And when you look at some of the mantras, like in today's condition, you know, there is a lot of more than the virus issue. I think the issue that is creating is the fear and anxiety. Yeah, absolutely. So in such conditions, what mantras would you recommend? Or is there some techniques that you recommend? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I mean, the, the fear I think that has been generated is going to have far worse repercussions than the virus itself. Exactly, that we're seeing um, already. Yes. Yeah, I mean, the state of mind that people are in, um, they're afraid to live, and they have lost kind of a certain degree of confidence in the inner safety of their life because, you know, they're going, okay, just a little virus was able to do this, what next? Mm -hmm. um, and so there's a, a few approaches to it. So there is a specific mantra, a bija mantra for Saraswati that is really, really good for the mind, which is I'm. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm using I'm as a bija mantra is fantastic for times like this. But I'm a real believer that in order to bring balance, long-term balance, like it's fine to use mantras like that for short-term to come overcome something, but that it's really important to use like all of the bija mantras. And that's why I recommend, you know, the chakra, the chakra mantra. Um, and I'm happy I can say it now and then yeah, I'm yeah. happy to. It will be fantastic. Yes. Yeah. My, my husband actually made a CD on this because if you're not engaging and you know this, you know, with the work you're doing, if you're not regularly engaging and detoxifying and moving the energy through every single chakra, you won't ever feel like that state of complete physical and mental balance. And that's why I think that this um, meditation is, is so important. So the mantra that I was given for balancing all the chakra is Hariyom Nam Lam Mam Lam Sim Ram Vam Yam Yam Ham Shiva Om Swaha. And I'll send this to you so that you can give to your um, the show notes. Leaders. I can put it. Yes. Yes. Yeah, and so they they can see. So the that's actually the mantra of Om Namah Shivaya, which is the source of all consciousness linked to all of the bija mantras for the chakra which is the you know so you have the unmanifest represented by the mantra of om namah shivaya and then you have the manifest represented by the bija mantras you know that are related to the five elements that create all of the universe so it's a mantra for balancing shiva and shakti and it's a beautiful beautiful mantra it's a very ancient mantra but it's a mantra for balancing the shiva and shakti energy in your own physiology um, and so when you do it, you can start doing it out loud and I'll give the instructions to you, but you can start doing it out loud, but eventually you want to do it quietly, but it's just Hariyom Nam Lam Mam Vam Sim Ram Vam Yam Yam Ham Shiva Om Swaha. And so as you're doing each one of those sounds, you're connecting it to the specific chakra. And again, I'll, I'll give the information to your listeners so they have this. Um, but when you're doing that on a regular basis, you're balancing every major energy center and you're also bringing the, your own Shiva and Shakti energy you know, into, into union. And so beyond doing like 
something specific for a particular symptom, which again, the I'm mantra, the Saraswati mantra, it's fantastic for controlling the mind. But then, you know, you want to get to a place where it's beyond just controlling the mind, but you have movement throughout the entire body, you have movement throughout all of the energy centers, and you're bringing together, you know, your own masculine and your own feminine energies within you. And so mm -hmm. that's why that, that is the mantra meditation that I give to almost every one of my patients, because it brings you to, you know, all of, all of the goals result when these chakras are in balance and when your male and female energy is balanced within you. Mm -hmm. I think this concept, this male and there is a masculinity in every uh, feminine, there is a feminine in every masculinity. Exactly. And if you see the world right now, there's an imbalance of extremes that is what is yes. going on. And I think no, it's a complete imbalance. And that's also one of the reasons why I love in this mantra. And it's, it's hard for like my male patients to initially realize that their own feminine energy is out of balance mm -hmm. for my female patients to see that their masculine energy is out of balance. And now because there's so much masculine energy, there's many women who their own female energy is out of balance because they've become so masculine. And so when you start to understand that these are energies that are within your, within yourself, and if there's not balance there, there will never be complete physical and mental balance. And this is, such an important goal. This is such an important aspect of life. It's something that my husband and I have thought about, you know, teaching in the future, um, you know, to couples as well as to individuals of what it means to be in a relationship, you know, with a man or with a woman, but how that relationship is really a reflection of your own relationship with your own masculine and feminine selves. That if you're not using relationships as, as your sadhana, they're, they kind of become a waste of time. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're not using them to better understand what are the nuances within yourself, because everything, all the imbalances that you see in your own relationship, those are all the imbalances you have with your own relationship with yourself between masculine and feminine. And when you can do that, then the, the true beauty of a relationship really kind of comes to life because the spiritual value of that relationship really starts to come to life. Actually, that's so true. I mean, the, the quality of our lives is the quality of our relationships and starting 100%. with our own self. One, you know, I, I'm so glad you said it. it took me so long, you know, because uh, you know, I'm a neurologist. And so that's, that's a very, it used to be, it used to be a very logic dominated, you know, perspective for me. You know, neurologists like their world. They like it black and white because we have all these beautiful tracks and we can, you know, create um, a lesion in one area of the brain and we can understand it. Um, and even when I came into Ayurvedic medicine, I brought kind of that very black and white logic to it at first of like, here are the doshas, we're going to balance your doshas. And, and what I realized was that there was this underlying current, this underlying invisible current in the form of, you know, emotional intelligence and emotional ama or emotional toxins that were tied to our relationships. And like, no matter how beautifully the plan looked, you know, from a dosha perspective, like until you address those, nothing ever fully works. And so I, you know, it took me a long time to realize the reason why it was so important is our relationships are a reflection of the relationships that are happening within ourselves. You know, these are, these are all just mirrors for what's happening within ourselves. And that's why it's so important to address this.
I think, see, in our culture, like in India, you know, there is a relationship with everything. You know, there, there is a festival where you keep all your equipments that you use for your work for puja. <laughs> because there is a relationship with what I, I mean, for doctors, we keep the stethoscope and yes. the BP apparatus and the books that you learn from your school. And if you see the, the electricians or the maintenance, they would keep their spanners and the rods. Because there is a relationship with that. We have a relationship with our mobile phone. We have a relationship with our laptop. Everything is a relationship. Just that something is living, something is, you don't see a pulse or heart rate in that. No, you're, this is one of the beautiful things that mm -hmm. I just, uh, I've learned so much from India. We have that, you know, we celebrate that also at the center. And so all the doctors would bring their equipment. For me, it was my computer and my cell phone because so much of what <laughs> I was doing, you know, was administrative. But I, I realized like in that moment how much gratitude I had for these tools that were in my life. And it really did open my eyes to just everything that we do have relationships with. And if we can bring that level of gratitude, you know, to everything that is contributing to our, our, our life, like how profoundly that shifts everything. Um. Uh, when it comes to that relationship, see, it's all about when we are grateful for something that uh, the energy of that equipment or it could be a person, it could be, it just upgrades completely. No, you're absolutely right. It comes right back to you. But this is, again, where I see, this, you know, just a, a deep value of the use of sound and the use of mantras is if you have these negative frequencies that are running through your mind on such a regular basis where you cannot see that, mm -hmm. you know, it separates you from the true beauty of your life. I mean, it's when, when those programs are running, you can't even walk on a beautiful beach and feel just like the overwhelming, you know, resonance of the divine in, in a setting like that. You know, I'm, I'm amazed, like now being back in San Diego and after having been in India, but also being so immersed in mantras, you know, in India, when I came back here, my everything that I associated with my previous life was so much more vibrant. I mean, it was just so much more alive. And I almost cried when I got to the beach. I was like, oh, my gosh, you know, the ocean <laughs> is so beautiful. You know, watching the sunset. I mean, I was just moved to tears. And I said, you know, even after having been in a mantra practice for most of my life, that it was really coming to India and being so deeply immersed in it and having such a, such a deep shift happen that everything that was even part of my, my life from before was suddenly beautiful. Even though it was beautiful before, I couldn't see the beauty of it. And this is, you know, this is just the beauty of, and the strength of a mantra practice is, it starts to get rid of all of that junk that separates you from just the beauty that's immediately in front of mm -hmm. you. I think just like we get up, brush our teeth and take bath, I think this mantra is like a spiritual cleanse that we no, have to do. Have to. I always say it's, it's, like, it's like a bath for your mind. There mm -hmm. have been days, especially when I was a resident um, in neurology, because you know, our, our days would be like 36 hours long. I mean, just it was crazy amount of work. Um, but there were days where I did not have time to take a shower. I did not have time to brush my teeth, but I still meditated because mm -hmm. I knew that I, you know, I could chew gum, get rid of that smell. I could put some deodorant on, get rid of that smell. But the stench coming from my mind, that would permeate everything in my day. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
uh, when it comes to Westerners, you know, when they talk about mantras, you know, they have this uh, obsession. Am I chanting it right? Am I saying the right pronunciation? And uh, is it important that I need to know the meaning of every sound? So in such things, you know, they are, they are constantly worried. Am I doing it right way? And that worry itself, you know, uh, the fear of perfection stops them to start itself. So uh, how do we uh, tell them with the baby steps to start there? Yeah, well, I think part of it is that, I mean, the West is kind of obsessed in general about perfection. I, you know, again, I didn't really appreciate how imperfect the system could be and still function well until I came to India that, you know, you don't have to have everything working absolutely perfectly for it still to be functioning, mm -hmm. you know, at a level that fulfills the needs. And so I think part of it is helping to undo just the overall need for control and perfection. But, you know, there is an aspect of the mantras where the sound is important, like the actual sound is a resonance. And so that frequency is important, but just like any relationship, you know, that will come over time. Now, I don't personally think that you have to understand the meaning. I think it is very important to have the sound because there's two aspects of mantra practice that really give it the power. One is the actual sound. And then the second part is the devotion that goes into the practice. Hmm. You know, how much of your own heart energy you're able to put towards that. Um, those are the two most important aspects of a mantra meditation. And so even if somebody, and you see this because many of the priests that, um, you know, I've seen like at the temples in India, they're chanting, but they're chanting like a computer is chanting. Like you could put on a tape and it would be the same thing. They're looking at their cell phones. They're looking at who's walking in. They're looking at how much money was put in the tray. That there's no actual connection From like the to heart. the mantra. Yeah. And so that is a, an enormously important part. So, you, you know, even if you have the perfect sound, if there's not the devotional aspect, you're not going to be able to energize, you know, the mantra. But the actual sound still is important. But the sound is something really easy to get like over time. Like just as you are doing it more, you start to notice like little teeny tiny, you know, changes in the resonance of like, oh, I was saying it like this. And so that's just a relationship over time. Mm -hmm. But the most important thing is, is having it as a devotional practice. And that's why I don't think it's important to know what the meaning of a mantra is, unless it's going to help you with the devotional aspect of it. Like unless that information actually helps you to connect to it mm -hmm. from a heart point then I would say if it's going to help, fine. But otherwise, it's not necessary from a technical standpoint. Mm -hmm. I think for Westerners, it's so important for them to have a logical background for everything. I mean, well, that's one of the reasons why I've written the books that I have written is I have found that if I can tell my patients, like in, in the U.S., why they're doing what they're doing, or just say explain some of the science behind it they are so compliant. Like I have some of the most compliant patients because I go deeply into why are we doing this? Why is this of significance? You know, whereas like when I was starting to work with many people, in, you know, they were just like, you, you know, don't, I don't care. Just tell me what to do. You know, just tell me what to do. <laughs> like, don't take up my time. Like I normally take an hour consultation with my patients in America. And, you know, they would be like, are we done? Like, you know, after 10, 15 minutes, like, you gave me everything. Are we done? And I'm like, well, I haven't explained why you're doing it. And they're like, it's okay. I don't need to know why. You said it. I'll do it. <laughs> and I mean, so I think you, you have to approach each culture, each group with, 
you know, what they're coming with um, and not see it as a weakness, but see it as a strength. And so for my patients in, you know, in America, I spend an, you know, it's an hour of just explaining really why we're doing what we're doing, but then they are able to take that information and make it theirs so that they can continue without me. You know, I give them the knowledge so that they can then um, implement this in their life however they need to, even when I'm not there. I think in India, see, before I used to practice with my father in his uh, hospital. So there we would start at morning eight o'clock and it will go on till uh, evening and you would see more than 70 to 90 yeah. patients and you have like about five to six minutes with yes. patients. And you just write down and they're least concerned. I mean, they just tell the symptoms. We check the pulse, we check yeah. the tongue, we check the eyes, we check many other aspects and you give the prescription and they're satisfied. Yeah. But when once I started the Sitaram Beach Retreat where Westerners come, <laughs> we didn't know the why behind everything. Where is the yes. source from? Uh, from yes. how is this made? How is this thing? Yes. But even though they smoke, even though they drink, even though they do all the other stuff, but they want to know, does it have any side effects? They do. But yes. it's just a mindset, you know. But I really appreciate both the sides. On one hand, you, have, you see the extremes of trust. On one hand, you see the extremities of uh, doubt. So... Once you have the hybrid model, you know, that's where the future is. No, I really, I really, really do agree with you. And that's a lot of what we did is probably a lot of what you're doing also at your center is we brought this hybrid. Like when I was training the doctors there, just in terms of how to deal with Westerners, I said, you cannot just give them this prescription without explaining. But then at the same time, for many of the um, people who were coming, the guests that were coming from the West, I would have to explain to them, like, you have to relinquish a certain amount of control, mm -hmm. that you have to relinquish the needing to know how all of this is going to unfold. And when we were able to bring those two things together of some guidance so that they could internalize the knowledge, you know, and take it back with them and understand why they were doing what they were doing, but at the same time, surrendering also to the process that when you have those two aspects come together, you know, you have something very, very, uh, you know, very, very powerful. I mean, being a doctor to Indians, you are actually a quite spoiled doctor because you you're very spoiled. <laughs> yeah, you're very spoiled because <laughs> I'll tell you something. Having come from the other perspective, I was spoiled from the Western standpoint. See, it just depends on what your perspective is because from a Western standpoint, I had such a great, like, teaching relationship with my patients you know mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I had I, I felt so much satisfaction that every person that came to me that I was we were birthing knowledge mm -hmm. right together and that they were taking that knowledge and they were applying it to their family they were applying it to their communities and so I always felt like with each patient I had that some part of me was going out with them and they were actually spreading it you know, to their family and communities. And so there, there was also, you know, tremendous, tremendous satisfaction in knowing that that was also occurring. I mean, when you ask about this, uh, giving this knowledge, you know, in, in, in my place, in my center, before we start the treatment, the therapist sit with the patient and we chant a mantra. Yes. Yeah. Because it's just to invoke that good energy and state exactly and we right. pray this Shanti mantra and also we chant. Let, the, let us all be healthy, let us all get well, and let there be a state of no illness. Okay, this is the mantra. So uh, people from Europe or US or even some parts of India, when they would come, I would like to know what's the meaning of this. And then what we did, we gave them the meaning with the transliteration. You know, it could be in English or whichever language. 
And after they said that uh, they wanted to get to know more about the mantras and they want to know how can I learn more. So actually getting to know the meaning, it's actually like, you know, uh, you say that, you know, you can bring the horse to the water, but if it drinks, but you can make the horse thirsty, you know, so that it can drink. So That's a beautiful (laughs) way to say it. No, that's exactly, uh, that's a beautiful way to say it. Mm -hmm. And I think you really have that. But so many people in the West, so many of their basic needs are met, you know, um, which that's something that I didn't even really think of until I came to India, realizing that, you know, not everybody is going to eat today. Not everybody is going to have water today. Not everybody's going to have shelter today. And when I'm talking about everybody, I'm talking about the people in my immediate community. Mm-hmm. And so that was a that was a huge shift in my mm-hmm. mindset of like, oh, okay, when these basic needs aren't met, it's really hard to have some of these other conversations. It's really hard to even be interested in some of these higher questions because you're not sure that all your children are going to get their basic needs or, mm-hmm. you know, are they even going to get their education? And so that helped me to kind of recalibrate like what it means to be at a place where you can be thirsty for that kind of knowledge. Cause there's a lot of fundamental needs that have already been met. So there's only two times where you start to ask those kinds of questions when your fundamental needs have been met or you're in such an existential crisis where everything is about to collapse mm-hmm. that all of that doesn't matter. So those are the only two times where you can have those kinds of, of dialogues and, you know, I think it's, 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 it's a wonderful, wonder. again, just depending on your temperament. For me, I think, you know, yes, my, my, my dharma is as a physician, but the way that I translate that knowledge is really as a teacher, that I love teaching my patients. I love when I can see the spark of self-awareness begin to develop. And I love it when they become independent of me, that that to me is my, you know, my greatest joy. And so... Again, but I've been shaped kind of from that that Western, um, you know, um, paradigm where that that would take place. But then I've also been shaped from the Indian paradigm of there's only so much you can teach, and then there's a point where you have to surrender also mm-hmm. to that which you cannot see, that which you cannot understand. I think that's the beauty of when you work in two different places. You know. It really is. It really is. I could not be who I am. Like, I mean, I love India so much, but I could not be who I am if I didn't have the Western perspective. Mm -hmm. But if I only had the Western perspective, I could not be as expansive and as flexible as what India has made me. I love these two worlds like so much. I feel so privileged that I got to be a part of, you know, this, this culture that, as you said, is so resilient, like India just keeps surviving. <laughs> it doesn't matter what you do, it just survives. Um, and where does that deep, you know, uh, survival come from? Like just being able to learn that so that you're not so fragile, so that you can ride these massive waves of pandemics and everything else. Like India has taught me that and how not to be so connected to control, but then to also have this Western paradigm of you know being able to have the freedom in your life to ask these questions you know challenge um you know well how do you know mantras work or um you know why is digestion so important in ayurveda uh it's it's wonderful to have both aspects of these and i'm so grateful that my life is being used in a way to help to bridge these two worlds each of which that i love so much you know, it's, it's a great sense of fulfillment that, you know, the divine kind of plucked me and said, 
we're, you know, I'm going to have you do this because I have such a love affair with both. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it's so wonderful both, exactly. for me to be able to talk about both. You know? I think that's what we humans are known for. You know, if you look at the history, we always take the best of everything and take, of course, there will be a lot of issues coming with the progress, but we always come out of it and bring out the best of everything. That's a very good point. It's, <laughs> it's a beautiful way to look at human beings. It's very true. And when it comes to mantras, is there something that you, you know, as a part of your practice, that uh, this is one thing that you always, you say that in your neurological practice, you tell them, like, like in your prescription, that when you give your medicines and your diet chart or some aspects of lifestyle, you also said that you impart mantras, chanting and meditation into that. Absolutely. So what aspect would you, what aspect of mantras are you, you know, recommending your patients in some conditions that you could share? Well, the, the shot, I mean, I used to be more specific in terms of the specific bija mantras, but I have really replaced so much of that with the chakra mantra I just shared with you. Mm-hmm. I think that is, that is such a universal Sound. panacea. Yeah. I mean, it really, it covers so much. I think, you know, I was so fortunate that I was even introduced to that mantra and that I've been able to share it. You know, I actually, I couldn't believe this, but I was asked to go onto a national television show in the U.S. to share that mantra with millions of Americans. Um, And to me, that mantra is just, it's such a profound mantra. And so that is one that I I give on a routine basis. I'm almost, almost every single patient, unless you already have an established mantra practice. I say, if you have an established mantra practice, just stick to that. Like for me, I have an established mantra practice, but I do that chakra mantra every single day. To me, that's just like, it's like bathing. It's like bathing my, my energy centers. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other aspect of it that I really do encourage people is this aspect of devotion. I have known so many people because I started meditating at such a young age, I grew up around meditators. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I saw change significantly for me, like when I developed that, you know, Guru disciple relationship with um, Shakti Yama, you know, in in um, South India in Valor, was the devotional aspect of my meditation just grew so much, and I just saw what it did to my entire meditation practice. Mm-hmm. It was like taking something that was still steadily moving at the pace of like a car, you know, so I was still making progress, but then it just took off like a rocket, and that people oftentimes underestimate the power of the energy of of devotion. And so I tell people like, whatever that means to you, like how do you tap into that place of devotion? You know, I had one patient where when he started to see the devotion that his wife had to him, it was one of my patients with multiple sclerosis that when he started to see, when he started to chant and I said, what, what are you going to use as a source of your devotion? And at first, because he had a uh, Catholic background, he used a picture of Mother Mary doing the chakra mantra, but using the picture of Mother Mary. And that was how he um, felt the feeling of devotion. But as his practice continued, he started to realize how much devotion his wife had actually shown to him. And then every time he would do the mantra practice, he would connect to the feeling of love and gratitude that he had for his wife. And so that field effect mm-hmm. you know that he was generating from his heart to start getting bigger and bigger and bigger and so in, in addition to having a mantra that has the capacity to do so much you have to connect it you know to devotion it's it's really really important oh i wish we had more neurologists like you around the world 
You know, for me, uh, being an Ayurvedic doctor, uh, I always say that being an Ayurvedic doctor today is like being a doctor for the leftover patients, you know. They go to the all the system and they have no choice, but they come. But there are some integrative doctors in allopathy, which I really admire and I appreciate and I respect. They tell, I mean, see, the one issue with allopathic doctors, of course, I have huge respect for allopathy because it is only because of them that we are living long today. Uh, but on the other hand, what I'm saying is, there are some diseases which they call it as these are incurable disease. Yes. The moment you call it, it is incurable. You know, the, the, the fear that we in, in, you know, put it inside a patient's soul yeah, absolutely. or that completely destroys them more than the disease itself. Yeah, and absolutely. in that, feel though any better like my practice in the u.s was the same mm-hmm. they would see 17 neurologists and then they'd finally come to me exactly <laughs> um, they're like nothing else worked. but how fortunate are we right how fortunate are we that we get people who've lost all hope mm-hmm. and that we get to reinstill hope you know i had one um vaija that i used to refer my patients for panchakarma to his um center and uh you know i mean i just i loved my patients so much and that was a big part of what I did was reinstill hope in them. Mm-hmm. And he said something really beautiful. He said, you know, when your patients come here to India, because, you know, they would come all the way from America to India and, you know, they weren't Indian. So this was like a really kind of like big step for them. And he said, when your patients come here to India for Panchakarma, the one thing I see is that they have so much love for you. Mm-hmm. And he said, you are generating so much like good karma because of this relationship, which I never even thought of. I never once even thought about it in that, in that way. And what I realized is the reason why there was that strong bond to my patients was because they, they were thrown out by the medical system. Mm-hmm. You know, they were told that you have no hope. And so then we started on this path together that brought hope back. And so, I mean, we're so lucky though, that we get, you know, that crowd because the, the potential, of the healing relationship is also so much greater. I think they say that, you know, the most happiest people are, uh, happiest professions are the hairdressers because immediately they see the change. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I would say, no, you have to be an Ayurvedic doctor to all the leftover patients of the modern medicine. Or no, the- it's really, really true. It's really true. One of the things I've been so grateful for, because being in India, I was so busy. I was in an administrative role, mm-hmm. you know, predominantly wasn't seeing um, patients and being back here in the US I've reconnected started doing um, Skype consultations to people all over the world it's been so enjoyable like mm-hmm. people in, in Europe people in Canada people in China just everywhere and it just reminded me of my my Dharma as a physician that <laughs> no matter what else I am doing there is nothing else that gives me this this level of, of, of joy you know, because it is, it's, it's, such a, it's, just, it's such a beautiful, beautiful gift to be given as a human being. Mm-hmm. You can help somebody change their life. You know, you can help somebody change their, their physical health, their mental health, but you're also in a position, which I know, you know, you appreciate this. You're also in a position to introduce a spiritual practice, you know, or, or help them to better connect with themselves, you know, the power that is within themselves because they're in a place in life where they are feeling vulnerable and so they're more open mm-hmm. to this. Mm-hmm. We're, we're extremely blessed to... You know, yeah, in that life. aspect, yes. And uh, once you change their life and they're like, wow, this is the best thing that happened to me. And that brings the tears of joy, you know. Yeah, completely. One of the most beautiful things. 
Yeah, completely. <laughs> and uh, any insight that you would like to share from your book on sound medicine? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the biggest thing that I have realized, because, you know, now even in quantum physics, we're realizing that the entire creation is really just vibratory. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a vibratory phenomenon, which is why sound works so profoundly, why we use it, because it is a vibratory tool. Um, even though mantras are prescriptive sounds that come from nature for a specific outcome, mm-hmm. I like reminding people that every sound that we make, every word that we say is just as powerful. And that even for those who aren't ready, like even if they read the book and they go, no, I'm not ready for mantra meditation, um, for them to at least take home that this and this is a tool. You know, it's a tool. Very powerful. All tools, it can be used for good or it can be used for destructive forces. And so if, if nothing else, start looking at the sounds that you are consciously making, the way that you're speaking to other people, mm-hmm. um, you know, and start looking at the vibratory content of your own words because that vibratory content is creating the world around you. And we have this capacity to create profound shifts through our, our words. So if, if nothing else, just to be conscientious that um, unlike any other animal that is on mm-hmm. this planet, we were given this tool of communication mm-hmm. and it is a sacred, you know, it's a sacred tool and it has the potential to create. When you're using mantras, you're creating using the divine sounds or the sounds of nature, but just in our speech, we are still creating the reality for ourselves and the reality for other people. Well, that's a very nice way of putting it. Like, you know, we are so blessed to have this ability to communicate with the sound, to sing, to give speech and to change people. Like they say that, you know, the words are like spells, you know, it has so much of energy in that. And uh, I'm sure you must have heard about this uh, research of a Japanese scientist. You know, he did this on the water molecule. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, so how the energy changes the water molecule. I think, like, in, in, we make our own medicine. So there, whenever we make a medicine, we have, we, use, we have priests coming regularly and chant mantras. And we use the special water. You know, like, we call it punyalan, means the energy of some divine thing. We are putting it in all the medicine. So... Okay, some people question what's the energy with that. I mean, okay, in some aspects with Western medicine and with uh, the scientists, they always think that unless you replicate in a laboratory, you cannot call it scientific. And so we miss out on the whole aspect there. So in that aspect, I think the mantras are like the little bit vibrations that completely turn around the energy there. It's like a magic. No, completely. And water in particular is so sensitive. Mm -hmm. And we're mostly... No, we're mostly water. You're doing you're doing amazing things. I'm gonna take up your offer one day. I'm gonna come come oh, and yeah, visit. I'm, sure, I'm so looking forward. <laughs> I'm definitely come one day. <laughs> what would you? Okay, you are a neurologist. You practice Ayurveda. Now you are into Siddha. You are into mantras, and you you know you are pursuing what your soul is calling for. What yes. would you recommend other upcoming doctors? Knowing what you know, you know. Yeah, I think the, the big thing is for physicians, whether they're in Ayurveda or in Western medicine, is not to be overly connected to any one paradigm. And the reason why I'm saying that's, that has to be true also for Ayurvedic physicians is 
our world has changed, right? The number of toxins that people are being exposed to has changed. And even um, the nature of so many of the chemicals, the way that they're causing dysfunction in women's body has changed, that you have to always be learning. You have to always be willing to, you know, take even what, what the ancients knew and reapply it to what's happening in modern life. I, I found like even in Ayurveda that some, some of the physicians would be so rigid mm-hmm. in terms of their approach that they were not acknowledging what were the modern day challenges, mm-hmm. you know, like not acknowledging, like they would give um, recommendations that somebody like in the West could never, ever uphold Follow, because yes. of their mm-hmm. schedule. And they said, well, no, this is how it has to be taken. And so just not to be rigid, whether it's from a Western perspective, like all the information we're now learning about the microbiome and how it impacts you know, every single system in the body that don't be rigid that just because you weren't taught that in medical school, don't be rigid that it can't be something that should be part of your focus and intention. And then the same for those that have been taught so much of the ancient traditions, don't be so rigid that you're not willing to look at what the needs of the modern individual is so that you, you remain relevant. And so I think just the overall rigidity um, with knowledge, knowledge is ever flowing and yep. even, yeah. And, and you have to be just as, as flexible with it. And that even the way in which the Siddhas were practicing, you know, 8,000 years ago, when we, when we are starting to bring those techniques back to life, we're having to do it in kind of a different way with more explanation or, you know, putting it in kind of a different wrapping um, because that's just the need of, of, of the, you know, modern individual. And so flexibility is really, really, really important um, when, when you're trying to help to heal people. And I think the same would apply for the patients as well, you know, because they're so rigid when the moment the one doctor says this is incurable, that's it. It's a sentence for the rest of the life. There's always, I think when a doctor says it's incurable, what he's saying is, as far as his knowledge, it's incurable. There could be another possibilities. Right. No, and it's what they're saying is correct based on their knowledge. But this is what I have found, is that when a patient knows that you care, like once they have made that connection to you, like on a heart level, that you can help them to bypass anything that has been said by anybody else that that connection and again i think this is why the element of devotion is so important even in your mantra practice that anything that you put your love into uh, it just it, it grows astronomically you know it grows beyond any expectation you can have and so just like that level of devotion is necessary for your mantras to have the deep impact that level of devotion is necessary in your medical practice also for you to have that deep impact on other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and if, if you don't have a devotional approach, you know, to, to how you, you care for patients also. And, and, you know, that doesn't mean that you don't have to sometimes have very difficult conversation. I have very difficult conversations, um, you know, with my patients in terms of some of the choices they're making and in terms of like how they're responding to my recommendations. But even those difficult conversations are coming out of a place of, you know, devotion and truly caring about what happens to them in their future. Mm-hmm. I see that you use the word devotion quite often. Yeah. Now, how can we understand the word? I mean, I understand what devotion you mean, but 
people think is it like commitment is it like responsibility or is it something like i'm doing it with love but how do you make it easier to understand this concept of devotion yeah you know i'll tell you devotion is something i've only recently come to learn mm -hmm. um because i it's first of all it's not something that's taught a lot in the west in the west everything is in terms of like your own independence your own success like stand up on your own feet you know you got to make yourself number one and devotion turns a lot of that training on its head not that you're not caring for yourself but the way that i see devotion at least how well, i've come to learn of devotion is it's really really connecting to the energy of your heart and when i say energy of the heart i really mean energy of the heart like as i mentioned in the book we now know that there is a field of energy that is in the heart that actually directly impacts the brain and directly impacts neurotransmission you know impacts brainwave function and so it's connecting to that energy field that is situated in the heart so it's physically situated in the heart because that's the heart chakra but it's associated with all of the emotions that we tend to think of as the um kind of the high functioning heart so things like compassion love and it's connecting to that energy but then asking how can i now serve like how now i'm connected to that energy how can i not how can i now serve so it's it's for me it's the energy of love but then it's also the energy of service wrapped in together and that is never a energy people oftentimes worry that if they approach life that way that they'll be taken for granted or they'll be taken advantage of and it's never like that because your your love for yourself is included in that mm -hmm. so it doesn't mean putting yourself in harm's way there's so many things that i won't do now out of self-love you know there's so many relationships like professionally that I won't get into because I just know that it's not gonna it's not gonna be the best for me from that level. So it's extremely self-protective also because you include your own well-being, you know, as part of that. Um, but that's how I see it. it's it's not just the energy of love, but then it's the energy of service associated with that. And with that, you can take any activity that you're doing, whether it's seeing patients, you know, whether it's doing a podcast, um, whether it's cutting hair, that anything you do, you are doing it from that place of wanting the person or the project or whatever that you're involved in to receive that energy of love that can help the world in some way or help people in some way, reduce suffering in some way. That, that's what it's become for me. I think to sum it up, it's like whatever you're doing it, do it with complete heart in it. I think exactly. that's where the devotion comes in. Yeah, absolutely. That was such a fantastic wisdom. In one hour, I think we covered a lot of pages of your book. <laughs> it was really enjoyable. <laughs> I really enjoyed this. Hour went by very quickly. <laughs> and to all the listeners, I'll be holding one more podcast interview with Dr. Kulri Chaudhary on her book called The Prime. It's one of the most interesting books at the same time a lot of insights which is quite original because she's bringing her knowledge on neurology and her knowledge on gut and ayurveda all put together and uh, that will i i highly recommend to everyone to read that book and if you are into audible.com it's also available in audible.com i will be putting it in the show notes and also all the details of how you can get in touch with dr kulri chaudhary it will be there in the show notes 
Thank you so much, doctor. It was really a pleasure. And I look forward to have one more episode with you so we will talk about the Prime book. Thank you very much.